pray together. Oh, come, Emmanuel, God with us. Lord, speak to us today. God, on our own, we have no capacity to hear you. We have no ability to know what we ought to do. We can't read your word rightly. We need your spirit. We need you to come and give light to our eyes and break dawn into our darkness. Lord, we pray that you will do just that as we read your holy word and we listen for your word to us today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Our scripture today is from Luke 1. Officially, we are to start at verse 68, but I decided at the last minute to back it up just a little bit. So we will begin with verse 57. If you have your own Bible, you can follow along with us. Now the time had uh, came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown his great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him Zechariah after his father. But his mother said, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, None of your relatives has this name. Then they began motioning to his father to find out the name, uh, what name he wanted to give him. By the way, the father, Zechariah, you'll learn a little bit later, has been struck mute during the entire time uh, that his wife Elizabeth was pregnant. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name John, and all of them were amazed. Immediately his mouth was open and his tongue freed, and he began to speak, praising God. Fear came over all their neighbors, and all these were uh, talked about and throughout the entire, throughout the entire country, hill country of Judea. All who heard them pondered them and said, what then will this child become? For indeed, the hand of the Lord was with him. Then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke this prophecy. Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his servant, David, as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham to grant that we being rescued from the hands of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you child will be called a prophet of the most high and you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins by the tender mercies of our God. Dawn from on high, break upon us. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. The best Christmas movie. Of this, there is no doubt. I say this with absolute authority. The best Christmas movie is How the Grinch Stole Christmas. I mean the original, of course, not the Jim Carrey version. The Jim Carrey version is a monstrosity. It's an absolute abomination. It should, it's creepy and it should be banned. No, no, the best, the best Christmas movie is How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Now, I will note, by the way, that the new one, uh, just called The Grinch, is pretty great. Um, 
It's pretty great. Uh, it's it has all of the charm of the original, um, and or most of the charm of the original, and it's it's it gets in your head. My girls have been to see it three times already. Uh, they're both pretending to be Cindy Lou Who, and they're singing. Uh, they're singing. What's that? What's the song? Now? Fahu Forays, right? That's being sung in my house constantly. So the new one's pretty good as well. But the best is the Grinch, or How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Now it is probably not surprising to you that the preacher's favorite Christmas movie is How the Grinch Stole Christmas, because after all, that is a movie about repentance and conversion, isn't it? I mean, you should expect the preacher to like this kind of a movie. But really, the kind of story and the kind of of conversion offered by the various versions of the Grinch, be it the original or the Jim Carrey one or the new one, is pretty much the same story that's on offer in every Christmas movie. There will almost always be somebody who fails to understand the meaning of Christmas and who has their eyes open. And usually their eyes are open in a way in a way that the Grinches are. They will come to see the goodness of other people and and they will see the goodness of the whole Christmas season and sort of by the triumph of the human spirit they will be saved. The Grinch hears the Who's singing, and his small heart grows three sizes, and he finds the strength of ten Grinches plus two. It's every Christmas story. It's every Christmas movie. And it's a great temptation for us to think in that way. Christmas already comes with so much doing. There are presents to buy. There are events to attend. There's food to prepare. There's family to see. And sometimes we find ourselves balking at all of this doing, all of the commercialization, we might say, and all the busyness of Christmas, and we turn our attention in other directions. But then again, we find ourselves doing, doing for others, giving to charity, volunteering our time. And in spite of our best intentions, we again become the center of the Christmas activity. It seems like it's almost inescapable. And all the Christmas movies, after all, have told us that it's about us. Have told us that it's, it's the power of the human spirit that's going to save Christmas, after all. And so we had better, we better get this thing right. And it is just, it's exhausting, and it's impossible. But our scripture today, and the whole season of Advent, tells us something very different about what Christmas means, about what the arrival of Jesus means. It tells about a God who looks favorably on his people and redeems them. A God who raises up a savior, remembers his holy covenant, rescues us from our enemies. It tells about a God whose tender mercy breaks like the dawn and gives light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. It tells us that God saves us, not through the power of the human spirit, but by God's spirit filling us like it filled Zechariah. The Holy Spirit fills him and he speaks the prophecy. It tells us that though we are not enough, the faithfulness of God revealed in Jesus is entirely enough, entirely sufficient for us. Christmas is not about our doing or even our giving or our serving or anything else that comes from our own power. No, it is about the power of God revealed in us and for us. You may have noticed that our, our theme for the season of Advent is waiting. Last week we heard about 
what it is for us to wait with God. We read Psalm 25 and we heard about God's steadfast love that we experience in the midst of waiting. And today and in the following Sundays, we're going to meet different people who are waiting on the arrival of Jesus. Today, it's Zechariah. Next week, it will be his son, John the Baptist. Then it will be Jesus's mother, Mary, and then Simeon. People who are waiting, waiting for the faithfulness of God to be proved. And each of them in their own way points not to themselves, not in their own faithfulness or their capacity for patience, but to Jesus. Zechariah here, notice, at the birth of his own son, he doesn't talk about his own son for most of the, of the, the song that he sings. It's really a song that he sings. He's talking mostly about Jesus. And when the time to talk about what John will do, who his own son is, the vision is that he will be great, not because of himself, but because of the one that he is preparing the way for. It's Jesus that we're waiting for. And we wait not in our own power or not in our own faithfulness, but in the power and in the faithfulness of God. We wait for, not for our work to finally come to fruition, like we've worked hard enough and finally it's all paid off. We don't wait for the human spirit to triumph like it finally will at the end of the Christmas movie, but we are waiting on the faithfulness of God. When we wait on the faithfulness of God, it's, it's as if we are waiting within God's faithfulness. We wait sort of in the faithfulness of God. Neither our faithfulness nor our patience nor any other capacity that is our own is our basis for waiting, but rather the faithfulness of God and the faithfulness that meets us in our helplessness. Fleming Rutledge uh, puts it this way, Advent begins in the dark. Advent begins in the dark. That is to say that, that we on our own are unable to bring about the work of God. And Advent reminds us of that. And we, as, as Zechariah puts it, we, we sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And that's exactly Zechariah's own situation. A little before the passage that we read this morning, Luke tells us about the day where Zechariah, a priest who can trace his lineage all the way back to the beginnings of the people of Israel, is ministering in the temple. And Zechariah himself, he seems like a character that is straight out of the Old Testament. He is a priest faithfully worshiping God as prescribed in the Torah. And then Gabriel, the same angel that we know Gabriel for appearing to Mary, which he'll do a little bit later in Luke's gospel, but Gabriel has appeared before to the prophet, uh, to the prophet Daniel. And so this, this angel from the Old Testament who spoke to an Old Testament prophet appears to Zechariah telling him that in his old age, he is going to have a son. Now, Gabriel doesn't make this link explicitly, but we can't help but notice that this is the same kind of thing that happened to Abraham, right? Abraham received this promise that he in his and his wife's old age would have a son, a son with a special purpose, born in seeming impossibility to aging parents. Gabriel tells Zechariah that his son will have the spirit and power of the great prophet Elijah. Great Old Testament prophet Elijah. And then Zechariah, like Abraham himself, can scarcely believe what he has been told. He asks, how will I know that this is so? I'm an old man. See, Zechariah himself is in the dark 
to what God can do and what God is doing, even as the angel of the Lord appears to him right there. And so Zechariah, his, his request for proof, his request for a sign is met with this mysterious answer. Gabriel gives him a sign, but an unexpected one. Zechariah is struck silent, and he'll remain unable to speak until after John is born. Zechariah will wait. His eyes are now open to what God can do, but his mouth is shut. And in his own body, he will bear the kind of waiting that his people, the people of Israel, have been enduring. The, the people for whom the word of God delivered at the, at, from the prophets seems to have gone silent. And they and, they and their, their sort of national situation then seem to be just waiting. There aren't new prophets coming. They are, um, they are clients to the Roman Empire, right? They don't have their own authority. They're not free. They are waiting in silence. And now Zechariah in his own body waits in silence. And he's going to have to wait and see what God does. Zechariah doesn't cast a vision and they go out and proclaim the good news so that that everyone will be inspired and they'll meet it. No, he has to wait in silence to see what God will do. Like Zechariah, many of us dwell in darkness. Many of you are suffering in silence. Maybe like Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth, you've been waiting for a child that has not come. Maybe you or someone you love is suffering from an illness and things, things seem to be hopeless. Maybe things are even at the point of death. Maybe your work is making you miserable, or maybe you are miserable because you're desperate for a job. Maybe you are waiting and waiting through a broken relationship. Maybe you've come to the realization that you have some kind of addiction that's destroying your life. Maybe you just feel decentered and rootless for reasons that you can't even begin to name. And you're hoping for something, something that you can't even give an expression to, that you can't even give a name to. And meanwhile, in your darkness, our world keeps telling you to pick yourself up by your bootstraps, to prove yourself by your achievements, to do something to demonstrate your worth. But try as you might, you can't find the power within you. You dwell in darkness and in the shadow of death. What can be done? What can be done when you can't save yourself? A theologian, Miroslav Volf, puts it like this. Around you is a society governed by the iron law of achievement. Its gilded goods are flaunted before your eyes on TV screens, and in a thousand ways, society tells you every day that you are worthless because you have no achievements. You are a failure, and you know that you will continue to be a failure because there is no way to achieve tomorrow what you have not managed to achieve today. Your dignity is shattered and your soul enveloped in the darkness of despair. But the gospel tells you that you are not defined by outside forces. It tells you that you count even more, that you are loved unconditionally and infinitely, irrespective of anything that you have achieved or failed to achieve. Zechariah is silent for nine months. He can achieve nothing on his own. He has to wait. And then, then the promised son is born. 
And Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesies, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Notice all of the language here. It's about God, what God is doing and what God has done. He has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us. He has shown us mercy. God has done and is doing all of these things. The action is all God's. And in doing them, God proves faithful to all of these promises from of old. Zechariah finds out and we find out with him that we are waiting within the story of God's faithfulness. Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to his ancestor Abraham, Zechariah says. And what did God promise to Abraham? In Genesis 12, God tells Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. And now it's happening. The promise made to Abraham that all of the families of the earth will be blessed comes true in Jesus, the one who gives his life for all. Now it's happening. And then Zechariah says that God has, has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his servant David. And here's the promise, another Old Testament promise, the promise that God makes to David in 2 Samuel 7. When David who wants to build a house or a temple for God, and as if God needs a house, and God tells him that. Um, and then God sends a message through the prophet Nathan to David. And he tells him this, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father for him, and he will be a son to me. The house that God raises up out of David is coming in Jesus. And it's not a physical house. It's the house of God's people. It's a people who belong to God. Bigger than Abraham could have imagined. Bigger than even David could imagine. It's the it's the house of the whole people all over the world, the whole church, all of the people of God. God gives his life, gives himself for everyone in Jesus so that everyone can be a part of his house. Not through our own achievements, not through anything that we've worked for ourselves, not through anything that we've engineered or organized, but through the faithfulness of God that we are waiting in, that we are waiting for. And Zechariah, breaking out into prophecy, calls on all of these Old Testament promises, all of the faithfulness of God that's come before him. And he uses the language of the prophets and the language of the Psalms in so much detail we couldn't possibly go into today. But he's calling on all of these, not just Abraham and David, but all of these covenant promises. And he breaks out into song. God has done it. Not Zechariah and my wife Elizabeth, that we have done it. No, God is doing it. God has proved faithful. The light breaks out in our darkness. It breaks us from the illusion that we are the ones who can build the kingdom of God. Advent reminds us that well, we can respond faithfully to God to be sure. And the, Zechariah talks about that as well. He enables his people to serve him. But from the very beginning, and the first and last word is that God 
is faithful, and God breaks into our darkness. There was a Catholic priest uh, named Alfred Delp who found himself, uh, well, who, who stood up to the Nazis in Nazi Germany and found himself imprisoned uh, and eventually executed. And during Advent, he wrote Advent reflections that he snuck out of his prison uh, and that came later to be published. And this is what Delp says. We have lived in a false confidence, in a delusional security. In our spiritual insanity, we really believe that we can bring the stars down from heaven and kindle the flames of eternity in the world. We believe with our own forces that we can avert the dangers and banish night, switch off and halt the internal quaking of the universe. We believe that we can harness everything and fit it into an ultimate scheme that will last. Here's the message of Advent. Faced with him who is the last, the world will begin to shake. And this is a man who gives his life fighting against evil. But he tells us to resist the delusion that we are the ones who make it happen, that we are the ones who can avert the dangers of the world and banish the night. No, we are waiting for God's dawn to break in on us. We are waiting for the faithfulness of God. And not only are we waiting for the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness that has been proved through God's covenant uh, with the people of Israel that comes to fruition in Jesus. We are still waiting, and we can wait confidently because we've seen it presently with us in Christ that God has more in store for us. We are waiting for the faithfulness of God. Our waiting, it doesn't just have a past orientation when we look back to the faithfulness of God um, through the people of Israel, even just with Jesus, but we are waiting for God to come and make things new, for God to do yet more in and through us. And that's exactly what, what, uh, what Zechariah is talking about. Now notice, he's, he's singing all of this, that God has redeemed his people. He's been faithful to us. He's raised up salvation for us. And he's saying all of this before Jesus is even born. For Zechariah, it's as if God's future, the future promises of God that we're going to see in the rest of the New Testament story, the rest of Luke's gospel, where Jesus will go, he'll, he'll grow up in the knowledge of God, and he'll go and proclaim the kingdom of God, and then will suffer and die and be raised again and ascend to heaven. Zechariah is in that moment anticipating all those things. But notice the language that he uses. It's not just that God will do these things in the future. It's that God has saved us. God is with us. Salvation has come. It's already here. Even though it, it stands in the future, it's still to come in some ways. It's rushed forward to meet us in the present. We are in the same place that Zechariah was. We wait for the return of the Lord, for God to come and make all things right, to banish the darkness, right? to have the last word, to shake the world back into its proper place. We are waiting for all of those things, but we wait as those who, it's like all of that future has come rushing forward to meet us. And so we stand with all the past covenant faithfulness of God, proved through the people of Israel that's met us in Jesus and all of the future promises of God, we wait with both of those things here with us 
now. There's a poem I'd like to share with you from a man named Scott Cairns. He's in uh, Waiting on the Word, the Advent volume that we've recommended. This is a poem uh, not about John the Baptist's birth, but about Jesus's birth. But it works here for us as well. Deep within the clay, Cairns says, deep within the clay, and oh, my people, very deep within the holy earth and compound of our kind arrives one clear, star-illumined evening, a spark igniting once again the tinder of our lately banked noetic fire. She burns, but she is not consumed. The dew lights gently, suffusing the pure fleece. The wall comes down, and do you feel the pulse? We all become the kindled kindred of a king whose birth thereever, uh, thereafter bears all to bright. Nativity. Cairns is calling on the human situation deep within the clay and oh my people very deep within the holy earth and compound of our kind. That's an image of creation that we are made of dust and clay and God has, has breathed his spirit into us. We are waiting. We're waiting for this arrival of the star illumined evening like Zechariah talks about the dawn from on high that breaks upon us. The light that comes to those who are made of of earth. And we may try to test it. We may be like Gideon who lays out the fleece. That's what he's referring to, suffusing the pure fleece. The wall comes down like it came in Jericho through the work of God. The past and, and future of God comes crashing into the moment and God's covenant faithfulness approved. And in that moment, we feel the pulse and we become the kindred of a king whose birth thereafter bears all to bright nativity. God's faithfulness to his people, the promise to Abraham that he would make of him a great nation and all the people of the earth would be blessed, comes to that moment. Comes right then. We're all can share in the birth of Jesus who's coming after, after John. We all participate. We all can participate in this bright nativity, the light that's broken out into our very darkness. It's kind of like this. This is the place of, of, of living in this hope. Um, it's like music. After all, this is a song uh, that Zechariah sings. It's laid out. You might notice in most of your Bibles, it'll be laid out as, as a poem or a song. Traditionally, this is sung in Christian litur liturgy. It's called the Benedictus or the Canticle. That's a song of Zechariah. And it's uh, traditionally a morning prayer. And we sing this still. Right? This is a song to be sung. It's kind of like it's kind of like a musical, right? Uh, you're, all the lines are, you know, lines are being spoken, and then the moment comes, and, and the great thing that's happening can't be captured just with words. You need a song and a dance, right? And it has to break out because it's like the whole future, the moment, it's coming to be right then. Can you feel the pulse? And so they break out into songs. It's like the future coming and crashing in. But there's another capacity in music, too. Music draws on all of our memories. I'm sure that those of you who are parents and grandparents here who a week or so ago had all of our kids up here on the stage, and they were singing, because I know this is in my head. It's been in my head for weeks now. Angels and lambs, ladybugs and fireflies. You know, all right, sorry about singing. I apologize. I apologize for the singing of my own, and I apologize for getting that back in your head. Told everybody. Okay. 
the song gets stuck in your head, right? Because music calls upon all these memories. That's what Zechariah is doing. He's calling upon the memory of the people of Israel. And he's calling upon the future that's breaking into that moment. And there it is. God's faithfulness is proved. And it's proved apart from any capacity of our own. Not from something that Zechariah did. Not from something that we did. But God's tender mercy that breaks from on high like the dawn. To give light to those who sit in the shadow of death, that guides our feet in the way of peace. The light comes in Jesus. It meets us here with all the faithful promises of God. That is the word for us. That is the promise of the gospel here for us in Advent, that the faithfulness of God meets us in Jesus Christ. It's a faithfulness with a memory, a faithfulness that has been born out in the life of the people of God and in all the, the faithful promises of God. But it's a, it's a waiting, it's a hope with a future too that comes and meets us here so that we break out like Zechariah into song. Covenant faithfulness of God is proved true in us. Beyond our capacity, beyond what we can do. God who meets us here who is entirely enough for us and we can never be enough. Let's pray. Oh God, we pray that we would feel, that we would feel the pulse of your hope. To know that we wait, that we rest in your faithfulness. We wait in you, even as we wait for you. That we can, so that we can sing with Zechariah, that you have been faithful, that you are faithful, that your light shines in our darkness, and that we are yours. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's worship together.